Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Single Player Mode, a personalized gaming experience. The newest book from Truist Dunkworth, intended for middle and high schoolers. It is a book as intriguing as it is mysterious. Now available on Amazon. American 11, are you trying to call? Our number one is in staff, and our five is in staff. Fox 4 hijack. What's going on, Betty? Betty, talk to me. Betty, are you there? Betty? It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumble. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right? Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. That, yes, that was definitely looked like it was on purpose. You're listening to episode 171 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the September 11th attacks of 2001. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On September 11th, 2001, 20 years ago tomorrow, the world was shocked when the press reported that four passenger planes had been hijacked in the United States. Two of them hit the World Trade Center in New York City. One hit the Pentagon, and one crashed after the passengers rebelled. The Twin Towers fell and thousands of people died. It was the deadliest terror attack in U.S. history. It soon was reported that the planes were being flown by terrorists belonging to the Al-Qaeda group headed by Osama bin Laden. But in subsequent years, many came to doubt this story. Some became convinced that al-Qaeda wasn't responsible, or at least not wholly responsible. Some even claimed that the Twin Towers were brought down not by planes, but as part of a pre-planned controlled demolition, and that high officials in the U.S. government were involved. So what is the truth? What brought down the Twin Towers, and who was really responsible? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin this one? First, later in today's episode, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Gwen Lindy, a retired Air Force colonel who was at the Pentagon on 9-11 and was an eyewitness. So I want to thank Dr. Lindy in advance. Second, we're going to be doing a two-parter on 9-11, and they will be controversial 
as a pair of episodes. I know we have people on both sides of the question in the audience, and not everybody will agree with my conclusions. However, I ask everyone's goodwill and to keep an open mind as we go through the evidence. The easy thing for me to do would be to simply skip this as a topic, but I decided to do it because there is a mystery here and a very well-known and world-famous one. And I know that people of goodwill would like me to tackle it and provide my analysis. So for them, I'm willing to go ahead, despite the fact that I anticipate some negative reactions, no matter what conclusions I come to. And my conclusions may not be entirely in line with any particular position, because I'm going to treat the questions and the evidence separately and not look at them as if a decision on one question dictates the answers to other questions. I may come to one conclusion on one subject and then another conclusion on a different question that could surprise you. We'll have to see what happens, because as I head into this investigation, I'm seeking to set my previous impressions and confirmation bias aside. So, Jimmy, you and I are old enough that we were we remember 9-11. And so what is your personal connections to this particular event? Well, I have more than one personal connection to this mystery. First, you know, 9-11 is one of those events like the Kennedy assassination where everyone remembers where they were when they first heard about it. If you were a teen or an adult in 2001, you'll remember where you were. Since the attacks occurred in the morning, East Coast time, it was three hours earlier here in California, and I was still in bed. I got a call from my East Coast friend, Stephen Gradanis, and he said that two planes had just hit the World Trade Center. My first thought was that a plane might have struck one of the towers by accident, but Steve quickly pointed out that the second tower had also been hit, so it couldn't be an accident. I'd been following the Clinton administration's anti-terrorism efforts over the summer, and I said, well, they've been taking a bunch of pokes at Osama bin Laden. So my first thought was that Osama bin Laden was responsible. I then turned on the television and watched the coverage. Uh, I was watching in horror as the first tower fell, and it was so weird. I remember thinking... Even though I was born in the 1960s, the Twin Towers had been standing there since 1970. So for the entire period of my life that I had clear memories for, the two towers had always just been there. They were part of the skyline. They were famous. And now there was only one of them. And I thought, what is this going to be like going forward with just the one tower there? And then the second tower also fell. And the landmark that had been there my entire remembered life was completely gone. I also heard about the strike on the Pentagon and the plane that came down in Pennsylvania. And in the days that followed, like a lot of people, I was glued to the news, watching the aftermath and how events unfolded. Interestingly, some of the women that I knew talked about how their husbands seemed to be unable to turn off the news coverage, even when their wives found it distressing and wanted a break from it. My theory is that that's because of the evolutionary psychology of men. Men are built to be the primary protectors of the family and the tribe, and so when a major threat is detected, it's natural for men to obsess about the threat and to find out everything they can about it in case they have to deal with it. In any event, a lot of men in particular couldn't turn off the news, and I certainly couldn't. And uh, you've had another personal connection as well? Shortly after the attacks, we got an email at Catholic Answers from a commercial airline pilot. He was a Catholic, and he knew the pilot of United Airlines Flight 175, which crashed into the second tower. 
His friend, Captain Victor Saracini, was a former Catholic, and he had been evangelizing him in hopes of getting him to come back to his faith. As part of that, he'd given him a copy of a booklet that Catholic Answers publishes called Pillar of Fire, Pillar of Truth. This is a booklet we've distributed millions of copies of. We first distributed it at World Youth Day in 1993, and its purpose is to support people's Catholic faith. In their most recent meeting, the pilot from Flight 175 had told this gentleman that he was looking at coming back to his Catholic faith, though that was the last time they spoke before the 9-11 attacks. Then, when he saw the aftermath of the attacks on the news, he saw footage of Captain Saracini's family being comforted by priests, so it looked like he did come back to the faith. Captain Saracini's memorial service was held at St. Andrew's Catholic Church in Newtown, Pennsylvania, and his funeral mass was held at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Now, it so happens that I am one of the authors of Pillar of Fire, Pillar of Truth. So it looks like I may have contributed to one of the pilots who was killed in the 9-11 attacks, coming back to his faith shortly before his death, something I've always been grateful for. That's really awesome. That's great to hear. So I would like to relay my personal connection to this, especially given that I'm in Boston. We're there in Boston. Yeah. So at the time, I was living in Salem, Massachusetts, renting a room in a Catholic rectory, which is a story for another day. And I was working for Catholic World News and Catholic World Report magazine. And it was it was still early. I was just getting to started to work that day. And I got a call from my sister to turn on the news. And I saw the first tower on fire. And uh, in fact, I was watching that coverage we had in the pre-open from Brian Gumbel. I remember it distinctly uh, on NBC. And I was watching as the second plane hit. And basically, I was stuck in front of the TV, as as you mentioned, for the next 12 hours or so. Apart from uh, there was a hastily scheduled special mass uh, set at, at the parish to pray for everyone. And because two of the planes had left from Boston, there were a lot of people with local connections and I recall seeing a lot of news coverage, interviewing family and friends. And so it was it really felt personal to me because so many people from Boston area were there. And knowing that the hijackers had to have been in the Boston area before the flights was unnerving, to say the least. Yeah. Similarly, in the investigation afterwards, it turned out that several of the hijackers had lived for a time here in San Diego, where some of them had taken flight training. In fact, Rosalind Moss, now Mother Miriam who was an apologist for Catholic Answers at the time, told me that some of them had been at the same gas station that she used. So there is a massive amount of literature on the 9-11 attacks, hundreds of books and articles and documentaries. How are we going to handle all that material? Because of the size of the literature, it won't be possible for us to cover every argument that's been made. Therefore, you may have a favorite argument that I just won't be able to cover. I really wish I could cover many more of them, but space doesn't allow it. Numerous full-length books have been written on this subject, and we couldn't cover all they say without using dozens and dozens of hours of podcast time. Effectively, we'd have to turn this into a 9-11 podcast indefinitely, so we'll have to limit what we cover. My apologies to people of all perspectives for that. Whether you support the Standard account or whether you challenge it, we'll only be able to cover certain arguments that people of your persuasion have made. So what do you make of people who dismiss certain views of 9-11 as conspiracy theories? Well, I think it's a mistake to dismiss any views of the attacks as a conspiracy theory for the obvious reason it was a conspiracy. Legally speaking, a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to do something illegal in the future. 
killing thousands of innocent people is illegal. And this operation was so large that whatever you think happened, it obviously took more than two people to do it. So we're dealing with a conspiracy by definition. Obviously, it's a conspiracy. If someone wants to say it wasn't, they simply don't know what the word conspiracy means. Consequently, nobody should be berating anybody for being a conspiracy theorist on this because it patently was a conspiracy. The questions are who was involved and how did they pull it off? Should people with views that differ from the standard account be accused of being crazy or stupid? I don't think anybody should be accused of being crazy or stupid. The conclusions you come to on this will depend largely on what sources of information you've been exposed to and which sources you credit. So we're not going to laugh or scorn anybody here. We're going to take everyone's position seriously. And I ask that the listeners do the same for other views, whatever your current position may be. I've made a point of studying arguments from both sides. If you agree with me, fine. If you don't agree with me, that's fine, too. I don't think you're stupid, and I hope you will do me the same courtesy. I've simply come to different conclusions. And I hope you'll appreciate that I take the task of weighing evidence from both viewpoints very seriously. In researching this episode, I've sought to set aside my previous views and take a fresh look at the evidence. I've tried to counteract the human tendency towards confirmation bias that we all have. And I'd ask the listeners to do the same, to set aside their previous views, whatever they may be, and take a fresh look also. Some of the theories about 9-11 involve government misconduct, and some people claim that the U.S. government's responsible for those deaths and that this terrorist attack was a false flag operation run by the U.S. government. Are you willing to say so if that's where the evidence leads? Absolutely. Longtime listeners of Mysterious World will know that I have no problem doing episodes involving misconduct by the U.S. government. That's something we've covered repeatedly on the show. Episode 7 was on Watergate, the biggest government wrongdoing scandal of the 1970s. Episode 15 was on the JFK assassination, where I concluded it wasn't crazy to hold that this was a conspiracy, possibly even one involving rogue government elements. Episode 18, the Dr. Feelgood episode, was about illicit drug taking by high government officials, including JFK. Episode 47 was about the Bilderberg Group, in which I expressed concern about the conniving of government officials behind closed doors. Episode 71 was about the murder of scientist Frank Olson by the CIA. Episodes 96 and 97 were about the outrageous actions of the government against David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Episodes 107 and 108 were about the daring 1971 burglary that exposed wrongdoing by the FBI. Episode 114 was about the outrageous actions of the government against Randy Weaver and his family at Ruby Ridge. Episode 136 was about the Davos World Economic Forum and its Great Reset Plan. Episodes 143 and 144 were about Air Force intelligence lying to a man named Paul Benowitz and ultimately driving him crazy. Episode 146 was about the 1934 fascist plot to take over the U.S. government. In each of these episodes, I acknowledged that it was either possible or that it was confirmed that elements of the U.S. government had engaged in misconduct, and sometimes that involved taking the lives of innocent people. Furthermore, in episode 151, we discussed Operation Northwoods. That was a plan proposed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the U.S. 
military forces to stage a false flag terrorist operation on U.S. soil during the Kennedy administration as a pretext for invading another country. That's a very close parallel to what some proposed for 9-11. And I said, yes, Operation Northwoods was real, and elements in our military really did propose staging terrorist operations in the U.S. as a pretext for war. So I have no problem concluding that our government has engaged in even extreme forms of misconduct if that's where the evidence points. So how are we going to start investigating today's mystery? I want to start by talking about the kinds of theories we're going to be considering. Given the number of proposals that are out there, there's no way to cover them all. As a result, we will not be considering some of the more extreme theories, the ones that are hardest to square with the evidence. For example, some theories hold that there were no airplanes and no hijackers used in the attacks. These are sometimes called no planes theories. Sometimes it's claimed that guided missiles were used and that they were disguised by holograms to make them look like planes. However, that's not possible given our current technology. We can't make holograms and volumetric displays that would do this, at least not right now. So aside from our technological limitations, are there other reasons to set such no airplanes theories aside? We have an abundance of evidence that the four airplanes were real and that they were filled with real people with known identities, all of whom died. For example, one of the people on Flight 77 was Barbara Olson. She was an attorney and a political commentator on cable news networks. She also was the wife of the Solicitor General, Ted Olson. I personally remember her. I remember watching her on TV before the attacks, and you can still find videos of her on YouTube, one of which we'll have a link to so you can watch it yourself. So she was definitely a real person. And what about phone calls that were made from the airplanes? We have multiple recordings of phone calls that came from the planes while they were in flight. Contrary to what you may have heard, most of these calls were not made from cell phones. They were made from the in-flight phones that are, or air phones that are part of the plane itself. You know, you will sometimes see them on the back of the seat in front of you. And they're designed to connect with ground communications. While it's not logically impossible that all of this evidence could have been faked, the fact people got calls from their loved ones during the flights is strong evidence that what's in those calls is real. So we won't be considering the new planes theories that have been proposed. And in fact, many in the 9-11 truth movement have themselves rejected the no planes theories, and some have even banned them from their discussion forums. As a result, we'll be looking at what happened on the planes based on what we learned from the recordings of the phone calls from the planes and from recordings of air traffic controllers and so forth. Having established this as a foundation, we'll then look at the theories that might explain this data in different ways. All right, let's look at the four individual flights. What happened on the first American Airlines Flight 11? At 7.59 a.m. East Coast time, American Airlines Flight 11 left from Logan International Airport in Boston. It was logged as carrying 92 people between passengers and crew, and it was headed for Los Angeles. At approximately 8.14, the hijackers took control of the plane, and we know this because that's when air traffic control lost communication with the flight. 
At about 8.19, five minutes into the hijacking, flight attendant Betty Ong used an AT&T airphone in the back of the plane to call American Airlines Southeastern Reservations office and inform them of what was going on. She remained on the phone for 25 minutes until the plane hit World Trade Center 1, and it's from her that we know most of what we do know about what happened on the plane. Betty informed them that the cockpit was not answering, a passenger in business class had been stabbed, and that a noxious gas like mace or something had been sprayed. The cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mace that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. She also indicated that other crew members in the passenger cabin had been stabbed. What is your name? Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. Okay. Our, our number one is, got stabbed. Uh, our person is stabbed. Um, nobody knows who stabbed who, and we, we can't even get up to business class right now because nobody can breathe. At 824, while Betty was on the phone, the hijackers tried speaking to the passengers to keep them calm, but they didn't know how the plane's communication system worked, and instead they accidentally broadcast their message over the radio instead of the intercom, and air traffic control picked it up. The hijacker, apparently the lead hijacker, Mohammed Atta, said that they had some planes, the first indication that more than one plane was involved. He lied and said that they were returning to the airport, telling the passengers to remain calm and not to move lest they injure themselves or the airplane. Is that American 11 trying to call? We have some planes. Stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're turning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll injure yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. Later, he reiterated this message, saying not to make any stupid moves. Nobody moves, please. We're going back to the airport. Don't try to make any stupid moves. At 8.26, Betty reported that the plane was flying erratically. At 8.32, another flight attendant named Amy Sweeney got through to the American Flight Services office in Boston and began relaying information as well. She and Ong were able to give the seat numbers of the hijackers, which is how they were identified. Amy also said that she believed that there was a bomb in the cockpit, something the hijackers had apparently claimed. At about 8.44, Amy said that something was wrong. Sweeney reported to Woodward, something is wrong. We are in a rapid descent. We are all over the place. Woodward asked Sweeney to look out the window to see if she could determine where they were. Sweeney responded, we're flying low. We are flying very, very low. We are flying way too low. Seconds later, she said, Oh my God, we are way too low. The phone call ended. At the same time, contact was lost with Betty Ong. At 8.46 a.m., 47 minutes into the flight and 32 minutes after the hijacking, Flight 11 crashed into the first of the Twin Towers in New York City, known as World Trade Center 1, or the North Tower. This created burning debris, some of which crashed into a smaller nearby building known as World Trade Center 7. Almost two hours later, at 10.38 a.m., World Trade Center 1 collapsed. As it did so, more burning debris hit the smaller nearby World Trade Center 7. What happened with the second airplane to be hijacked? 
15 minutes after the first flight took off at 8.14 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 also departed from Logan International. It was carrying 65 passengers and crew and was also headed for Los Angeles. Sometime between 8.42 and 8.46, around 30 minutes into the flight, the hijackers took over the cockpit. At 8.47, air traffic control realized something was wrong when the airplane changed its transponder codes twice within a minute and did not respond when told to put their transponder back to the correct code. Yeah, 175, recycle your transponder and score code to 1470. United 175, New York. United 175, do you read New York? United. United 175, do you read New York? Several people from the plane managed to make phone calls, including passenger Brian Sweeney, who left this message for his wife at 8.59, 15 minutes into the hijacking. Jules, this is Brian, uh, on an airplane that's been hijacked. The things will go well. I'm looking good. I just want you to know I absolutely love you. I want you to do good. So happy to find uh, things for my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you. And uh, I'll see you in September. Hi, babe. I call you. Later, his wife Julie reflected. I remember when he said, I'll see you when you get here. Um, here to him was where he was going. And in his belief, you, you meet up with everybody once you get there. So he said goodbye, and he told me to live my life and be happy and move on, move forward, and I knew he was gone then. I just, I knew it. Brian then called his mother, said the plane had been hijacked, and said that the passengers were thinking of storming the cockpit. This would have been 15 minutes after Flight 11 hit the first tower, and word may have reached the passengers, causing them to realize just how much danger they were in. Why would getting word about the first tower being hit have caused them to think they were in more danger? They already know that they'd been hijacked. Because before 9-11, nobody had used a plane as a weapon. Instead, hijackers would either demand to be taken somewhere like Cuba, or they would demand money like D.B. Cooper, who we will be talking about in the future. There had been a wave of hijackings in the 1960s and 70s, and that was always the pattern. And since the hijackers never tried to crash planes into things, the standard advice at the time was to sit back and comply with their demands to keep the situation as safe as possible. But if the Flight 175 passengers learned that Flight 11 had crashed into the World Trade Center, that would signal them not to comply with the hijackers, but to try to seize control of the plane by themselves. Unfortunately, they weren't in a good position to do that. At 9 a.m., passenger Peter Hansen phoned his father and said, It's getting bad, Dad. A stewardess was stabbed. They seem to have knives and mace. They said they have a bomb. It's getting very bad on the plane. Passengers are throwing up and getting sick. The plane is making jerky movements. I don't think the pilot is flying the plane. I think we're going down. I think they intend to go to Chicago or someplace and fly into a building. Don't worry, Dad. If it happens, it'll be very fast. My God! My God! Less than two minutes later, at 9.02 a.m., Flight 175 crashed into the second of the Twin Towers, known as World Trade Center 2, or the South Tower. This is just over an hour from the time the first of the planes took off. Then, almost an hour later, at 9.59 a.m., World Trade Center 2 collapsed. 
World Trade Center 2 was the second tower to be struck, but the first to collapse. So World Trade Center 1 was still standing at this time and wouldn't go down for another half hour. The third flight to be hijacked was American Airlines Flight 77. What happened on it? It took off from Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C. at 8.20 a.m. It was carrying 64 passengers and crew and was headed for Los Angeles. It transmitted its last normal message at 8.51, 30 minutes into the flight, and the hijacking occurred within the next three minutes when the plane began deviating from its flight plan. Passengers on board the plane reported that, in addition to the knives that had been used on the first two planes, the hijackers also used box cutters. Between 9.16 and 9.26, attorney and conservative CNN commentator Barbara Olson called her husband Ted, who was then the U.S. Solicitor General. Here's what was reported immediately afterward. Uh, She called her husband twice. Uh, during the hijacking, to tell them the plane had been hijacked. And they lost contact once, and she called back. After the first call, uh, Olson called the command center at the Justice Department to inform them of this hijacking, and they said they knew nothing about it but would track it down. Olson, uh, Barbara Olson told Ted the following story, that uh, all the passengers were herded to the back of the plane, including the flight personnel, including the pilot. And uh, the only weapons she mentioned were knives and cardboard cutters. You would think if there were a machine gun or any other kind of uh, gun that she would have mentioned that. But the only only weapons she mentioned were knives and cardboard cutters. Uh, I asked Ted if she made any reference to nationality of the hijackers or any suspicions about the motive. And uh, he said she, she made no reference to that at all. They didn't have a whole lot of time to talk. She said to, to Ted, what do I tell the pilot to do? somewhat typical of Barbara, uh, a take-charge kind of person. Uh, But uh, there was nothing they could do. They're all trapped in the back of the plane. Years later, her husband Ted reflected, Barbara had changed her flight because September 11, unfortunately, was my birthday. And so she changed her flight to be there the night before. And so she got on this flight from Dulles Airport to Los Angeles. She was going to be on the Bill Maher show that night. And when, when the news came in, I was in the Justice Department, the Solicitor General's office. My secretary rushed in and, and we turned on the television set and we saw the film that was coming in over the the networks of the first plane that crashed into the World Trade Center and then the second, but somewhere around 9.15, my secretary rushed in and said, Barbara's on the phone. I had worried, as soon as I saw this tragedy unfolding, that maybe Barbara's flight was one of the ones that had been flown into the World Trade Center. And so when my secretary said she was on the phone, I thought, oh my God, you know, Barbara's okay. So what a cruel sequence of events. Barbara was originally scheduled to fly to Los Angeles on September 10th to be interviewed on The Bill Maher Show, but she changed her flight plan to be with her husband for his birthday. And then, on his birthday itself, her flight was hijacked and he worried about her, only to get a call from her making him think she was okay, and yet be informed that her flight, too, was hijacked. They got cut off, but Barbara was able to get through again by calling the Justice Department collect and then force her way through the phone bureaucracy to get to her husband, only for Ted to have to break the news to her of what was happening. I had to tell her what I already knew, which is the two airplanes had been crashed into the World Trade Center, so I had to tell her what 
she obviously was able to process what was in the cards for her. So it was very difficult. The conversations were very short. He also offered an interesting insight into her character. I wrote a piece about this afterwards, about how Barbara was a quintessential American, a, a blonde um, Catholic girl that was raised in Texas that became a professional ballerina for a while and then uh, paid her way through a Jewish law school here in New York. And I, you know, Cardozo, predominantly Jewish, and, and a sort of a right-wing Republican at, at a, at a left-wing um, school and so forth. But And she had become a best-selling author and a commentator and that sort of thing. She was a quintessential American. She thought opinionated was a good thing, um, <laughs> to have opinion. And I remember her as being a feisty, opinionated commentator. But she was on a doomed flight, and with everyone trapped in the back of the plane, there wasn't a lot they could do. Meanwhile, air traffic control was trying to get a handle on the situation, and they made contact with the military aircraft in attempt to get eyes on Flight 77. The plane they contacted was a military C-130 aircraft, meaning it was a transport plane rather than a fighter. It could see and follow Flight 77, but as a transport plane, it wasn't equipped to shoot it down. So follow it is what they did. The transport plane found Flight 77 and said it looked like a commercial 757 flying at very low altitude. Are you have the traffic? Do you know what kind it is? Can you see? Looks like a 757, sir. Looks like he's at low altitude right now, sir. Go for 86, turn right and follow the traffic, please. But at 9.37, 11 minutes after Barbara Olson got off the phone with her husband, Ted, Flight 77 reached the end of its journey when it crashed into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. In uh, Washington, this is go for 06. Okay. Yes, sir, the aircraft is down. Looks like that aircraft crashed into the Pentagon, sir. So we have an eyewitness of Flight 77 hitting the Pentagon in the C-130 plane. And at this point, we're an hour and a half into the events of the morning. The Pentagon crash sparked a massive fire, and at 10.50 a.m., five stories of one segment of the Pentagon collapsed. This was an hour and a quarter after it was struck. The final plane to be hijacked was United Airlines Flight 93. What happened on it? It took off at 8.42 a.m. from Newark International Airport in Newark, New Jersey. It was carrying 42 passengers and crew and was bound for San Francisco. By this point, Federal Aviation Administration and airline officials were alert to the fact multiple hijackings were in progress. That had been hinted at on the first plane when Mohammed Atta accidentally broadcast that, we have some planes. But nobody had attempted multiple hijackings anywhere in the world in over 30 years, and it had never happened before in America, so nobody was expecting it and officials were slow to react. But by this point, they had figured it out, and at 9.24, 46 minutes into Flight 93, United Flight Dispatcher Ed Ballinger radioed Flight 93 and said, Beware any cockpit intrusion. Two aircraft hit World Trade Center. Two minutes later, at 9.26, pilot Jason Dahls sent a communication back that indicated he was puzzled. Ed, confirm last message, please. Jason. Two minutes after that, at 9.28, the hijackers attacked the cockpit, and we have audio recording of that. You can hear Captain Dahl declaring a mayday amid the struggle. (laughs) 
39 seconds later, a second transmission was received and the struggle was continuing. It also appears that a member of the flight crew yells what some heard as, we're all going to die here. However, others have heard it as, hey, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here, which could be more probable as they wouldn't have reason at this point to conclude that they were definitely going to die. United 93, verified 350. We hear some funny noises. We're trying to get him. Do you have him? No. United 93, Cleveland. United 1523, did you hear uh, screaming? Yes, I did, and uh, we couldn't tell what it was either. By 9.32, four minutes after the cockpit was attacked, the struggle was over, and a hijacker, probably Ziad Jara, who had received some flight training and served as pilot, attempted to use the intercom to speak to the passengers, but again, he accidentally broadcasted instead. He said, Ladies and gentlemen, here is the captain. Please sit down. Keep remain sitting. We have a bomb on board, so sit. Seven minutes later, at 9.39, air traffic control overheard a second message from Jara. He again announced himself as the captain, told everyone to remain seated, and said there was a bomb on board, that they were returning to the airport where they would make their demands, and to remain quiet. Hi, the captain. I would like to all remain seated. We have a bomb and we are going to take to the airport, and we have our demands, so please remain quiet. Multiple passengers were able to use the plane's airphones to make calls, and at least two of them reported that the hijackers were aware of this, but didn't seem to care, perhaps on the principle that to inflict maximum terror, you want your victims to be able to speak. At the back of the plane, flight attendant Cece Lyles attempted to reach her husband and left a message on their answering machine. Hi, baby. I'm Baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. There's three guys they've hijacked a plane, and I've heard that there's planes that's been, been thrown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your fans again, baby. I love you. Bye. One passenger who got through was Mark Bingham, who was able to reach his mother. He said, Mom, this is Mark. I just want to tell you I love you. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco, and there are three guys on board who've taken over the plane, and they say they have a bomb. Although we have records of the hijackers claiming to have a bomb on three of the flights, this appears to have been a lie to get the passengers to comply with them. The hijackers apparently didn't try to smuggle anything past airport security that would have been illegal legal on a plane at the time, and no evidence of bombs has been found. After speaking with her son, Mark's mother saw news reports of the Twin Towers being hit and realized what was happening. She then called him back and left him a voicemail, which was later retrieved from his phone company's voicemail system. Mark, this is your mom. The news is that it's been hijacked by terrorists. They are planning to probably use the plane as a target to hit some site on the ground, if you possibly can. Try to overpower these guys if you can, because uh, they'll probably use the plane as a target. So uh, I, I would say go ahead and do everything you can to overpower them, because they're hell-bent. Uh, I'll uh, try, to, try to call me back if you can. There are multiple other recordings of passengers from this flight, but we won't be playing them because our purpose here isn't to milk the emotion of the situation, but to lay down the evidence we need to form a picture of what was happening and what we've heard will suffice. At 9.42 a.m., 
10 minutes into the Flight 93 hijacking, the Federal Aviation Administration shut down all air traffic in the United States and ordered all planes to land at the nearest airport in an attempt to prevent further hijackings. This was the first time in U.S. history that the entire civilian air system had been shut down and planes began landing. Needless to say, Flight 93, which had already been hijacked, remained in the air. Although passengers on the second and third planes considered storming the cockpits, it was the passengers on Flight 93 who we know actually did so. How did that happen? In phone calls from five of the passengers, it was reported that they were forming a plan to try to retake the plane. According to one call, the passengers took a vote, which was democracy in action, and helped them act as a group instead of just lone individuals. You know, we get everybody's buy-in, we voted, let's go do this. We know that at least 12 people, 10 of the passengers, both men and women, and two of the flight crew, including C.C. Lyles, participated in the plan. It may have been more than that, but we know of at least 12 participants. The revolt began at 9.57 a.m., 25 minutes into the hijacking, which we know because several passengers cut their phone calls short to join the revolt. One of the callers ended her message by saying, Everyone's running up to first class. I've got to go. Bye. The most famous call was made by passenger Todd Beamer. Here is what the GTE airphone supervisor Linda Jefferson reported. When I took the call over, there was a soft-spoken, calm gentleman on the other end. He told me that there's three people that have taken over the flight. At that point, I asked him his name. He told me, Todd Beamer. He was from Cranberry, New Jersey. So he had said, oh, Jesus, help us. And then he said, Lisa, would you recite the Lord's Prayer with me? And I knew that he knew at that time that it wasn't much left for him to do. They're all heroes in my eyes. They really are. They all pitched together. And they did what they thought was the best thing to do at that time. And um, I feel that Todd played a great role in that because when he told the guys, are you ready? I assumed that they were waiting on his cue. Then they responded to him and he said, OK, let's roll. And those words, let's roll, became famous afterwards as a symbol of the determination of ordinary American citizens to fight back against the terrorists, even in desperate circumstances. What happened when the passengers put their plan into action? We know about this from the cockpit voice recorder, which was later recovered. It shows that the passengers stormed the cockpit and continued to assault it. Pilot Ziad Jara began to roll the plane sharply to the left and the right, trying to knock the passengers off balance, but the passengers kept up their assault. He then changed tactics and started pitching the nose of the plane up and down. The 9-11 Commission report summarizes what happened next. The recorder captured the sounds of loud thumps, crashes, shouts, and breaking glasses and plates. At 10 o'clock in three seconds, Jara stabilized the airplane. Five seconds later, Jara asked, Is that it? Shall we finish it off? A hijacker responded, No, not yet. When they all come, we finish it off. The sounds of fighting continued outside the cockpit. Again, Jara pitched the nose of the aircraft up and down. At 10 o'clock and 26 seconds, a passenger in the background said, In the cockpit. If we don't, we'll die. 16 seconds later, a passenger yelled, Roll it! Jara stopped the violent maneuvers at about 10.01 and said, God is the greatest. God is the greatest. He then asked another hijacker in the cockpit, Is that it? I mean, shall we put it down? 
To which the other replied, Yes, put it in, and pull it down. The passengers continued their assault, and at 10.02 and 23 seconds, a hijacker said, Pull it down, pull it down. The hijackers remained at the controls, but must have judged that the passengers were only seconds from overcoming them. The airplane headed down. The control wheel was turned hard to the right. The airplane rolled onto its back, and one of the hijackers began shouting, God is the greatest, God is the greatest. With the sounds of the passenger counterattack continuing, the aircraft plowed into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, at 580 miles per hour, about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. At 10.03 a.m., 31 minutes into the hijacking and 6 minutes into the passenger revolt, the plane crashed. And so, because of the heroic efforts of the passengers, Flight 93 never reached its target, which later investigation indicated was either the White House or the Capitol Building, which contains the U.S. House and Senate. All four of the hijacked aircraft were now down. What happened afterward? Emergency relief efforts continued in New York at the site of the World Trade Center, which later became known as Ground Zero. Emergency efforts also continued at the Pentagon, and responders came to the site of Flight 93's crash in Pennsylvania, but no one was alive there to help. Finally, at 5.20 p.m., World Trade Center 7, which had been injured by falling flaming debris from World Trade Center 1, also collapsed. There's obviously a lot more to the story and what happened afterwards, but we're going to remain focused on the shape of the 9-11 conspiracy, which was a conspiracy as it involved multiple people agreeing to do multiple illegal things. We've now had a basic look at what happened on each of the four planes that was hijacked and each of the targets they struck. What does that allow us to conclude so far? The first thing is that four airplanes definitely were involved in the 9-11 attacks. Someday we may look into the no airplanes theories, but these theories have fallen out of favor even in the 9-11 truth community, and I think for good reason. While it's not logically impossible for all the evidence we've considered to have been faked, including air traffic control recordings, the phone calls that you've heard from people on the planes, and the disappearance of known individuals, including public figures like Barbara Olson, I think it's very unlikely that this evidence was faked. By a wide margin, the balance of probability points to these planes being used in the attacks with the identified flight crews and passengers on board, and with the passengers who were identified as hijackers, based, among other things, on the evidence given by flight attendants like Betty Ong and Amy Sweeney, and what seat numbers the hijackers came from. So we'll move on to our theories next, but first I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Terry F., Mary S., Justin S., Josette S., and Mary H., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. 
and by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Single Player Mode, a personalized gaming experience, the newest book from Truist Dunkworth intended for middle and high schoolers. It is a book as intriguing as it is mysterious. Now available on Amazon. Jimmy, given the evidence we've already seen, what theories do we still need to consider about 9-11? They concern how the 9-11 attacks were accomplished, who was involved with them, and why they did it. All right. What about the theories concerning how the attacks were carried out? The standard account holds that it was only the four hijacked planes that were involved, and they were responsible for all the damage that was done. However, an alternative account holds that the three World Trade Center buildings were brought down in controlled demolitions and that the Pentagon was damaged by a missile rather than a plane, though we've already seen evidence against that. Finally, there are some claims that Flight 93 was not brought down due to a passenger revolt, but was in fact shot down by a U.S. military plane. And who have people suggested were involved? According to the standard account, the plot was carried out by Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda organization and no one else. However, it has been suggested that this was an inside job involving elements of the U.S. government or its agencies, including the CIA. And there have been suggestions that other countries were involved, including Israel, Russia, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. What about the theories concerning why the attacks were performed? This will depend on the particular groups that carried them out, so we'll look at the question of motive as we determine who was involved. So what do we need to say about the attacks on 9-11 from the faith perspective? Not much. Obviously, what happened was horrifically evil. No matter who committed them, they amounted to mass murder and terrorism, and those things are appallingly evil. What can we say about the 9-11 attacks from the reason perspective? How were they carried out? Could the airplanes really have caused World Trade Center buildings one and two to collapse? We won't be able to cover every argument that has been made in this regard, but you can read more from both perspectives in the resources that we'll have at the end of the show. However, there are several arguments that have been made to suggest that the towers could not or did not collapse as a result of airplane strikes. For example, in 1945, the Empire State Building in New York City was hit by a B-25 bomber, but it wasn't taken out. It's further argued that the jet fuel the planes were carrying would not have burned hot enough to melt the steel columns supporting the World Trade Center buildings. It's argued that once the towers began to collapse, they fell faster than they should have, and that as they fell, puffs of dust and debris were ejected through the windows, suggesting an explosion. Finally, it's argued that seismologists detected two strong jolts at the beginning of each collapse, suggesting new explosions. On the basis of these, it's argued that it was not the planes that brought down the Twin Towers, but that they were instead brought down in controlled demolitions. Let's look at the first of these claims. If the Empire State Building survived being hit by a plane in 1945, why wouldn't the World Trade Center? 
There's a lot more to say about the physics and engineering of all this, but we'll hit the key points. Basically, the Empire State Building would have better withstood an airplane strike for two principal reasons. First, building construction methods had changed. When the Empire State Building was constructed, they used steel-reinforced concrete columns and put a thick masonry exterior on the building. But in the 1960s, they shifted to a new lightweight style of design that allowed for taller, more flexible buildings. As a result, the World Trade Center buildings, which opened in 1970, were much lighter. They had a steel and concrete core, but they did not have the same kind of supporting columns further out from the core. So the individual floors were supported instead by lightweight steel trusses. They did this in part to free up more room for office space, resulting in the World Trade Center containing much more empty space per floor. It had a lot more empty, airy, open space inside the building. They also didn't have the same kind of masonry shell on the outside of the building, as you can see for yourself by looking at how much more prominent the glass windows on the exterior of the building were. Pound for pound, the structures were very different. The weight of the Empire State Building per cubic foot it contains is 38 pounds. But the weight of the World Trade Center buildings per cubic foot they contain is only 8 or 9 pounds. For comparison, that's less dense than balsa wood, which is 10 pounds per cubic foot. But the result was that the World Trade Center was only 22% as dense as the Empire State Building, making it much less sturdy to airplane strikes. You said there was a second reason the World Trade Center buildings were less likely to withstand the airplanes that hit them. What was that? The Empire State Building was hit by a B-25, which was a sizable plane in 1945. But the Twin Towers were hit by Boeing 767s, which were much larger planes. A fully loaded B-25 has a maximum takeoff weight of only 17 tons, but a 767 has a maximum takeoff weight of 100 tons. So the plane that hit the Empire State Building was six times smaller than the ones that hit the World Trade Center. The B-25 was also slower, hitting the Empire State Building at 200 miles an hour, but the planes that hit the World Trade Center were going 500 miles per hour, two and a half times faster. A B-25 carried only a tenth as much fuel as a 767, so there were 10 times as much fuel to burn when the Twin Towers were struck. Thus, when the towers were hit, they were struck by planes that weighed six times more, were traveling two and a half times faster, and that were carrying ten times more flammable fuel. And the changes in the building techniques meant that they were striking buildings that were five times less dense. That's why the Empire State Building could survive much better than the Twin Towers. What about the claim that the jet fuel that the planes were carrying would not have burned hot enough to melt the steel columns supporting the World Trade Center buildings? The fires inside the towers weren't just from jet fuel, but from all the flammable contents that the buildings contained. However, it's true that jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel. Jet fuel burns at around 2100 degrees Fahrenheit, while steel doesn't melt until around 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. But you don't have to melt steel 
to weaken it. Steel begins to lose its strength at around 750 degrees. By the time it reaches 1100 degrees, it's lost about 50% of its strength. And if it reaches 1800 degrees, which is cooler than what jet fuel burns at, it retains only 10% of its strength. And we don't want to forget that the floors where the airplanes hit were also structurally damaged by the impact of dozens of tons of aircraft slamming into them at 500 miles an hour. That alone would have done a lot of damage to the supports holding up these floors. So what happened in this case was that the initial plane strikes damaged the supports on those levels. The jet fuel touched off an initial very hot fire that lasted for about 10 minutes, transferring some heat into the steel that was holding the building up. But because of that initial fire, all the other flammable things in the towers continued to burn, you know, at least on those floors and adjacent ones, allowing more time for heat to be absorbed by the steel and weaken it. And after between one and two hours of the fires burning and the steel on the affected floors soaking up heat, the supports for those floors had been weakened enough that they could no longer support the weight of the floors above them, and they buckled. The weight of the floors above them then crashed down onto the floors immediately below them, and they buckled too. And as each new floor buckled, it added to the weight crushing the next floors below, causing the building to pancake down with the crushing force growing as they fell. What about the claim that once the towers began to collapse, they fell faster than they should have? The argument here is that as the buildings collapsed, the lower floors should have put up resistance, slowing the fall of the buildings. If you drop something off the top of one of the towers so nothing was resisting it but air, it would have taken about nine seconds to reach the ground if nothing slowed its fall, you know, if it wasn't shaped in a way that would maximize air resistance. And it's claimed that the buildings fell in only nine seconds, suggesting that their internal integrity was destroyed all at once by bombs going off simultaneously at both the lower and higher levels so they were effectively in free fall. Are there problems with this argument? There are several. First, there apparently weren't bombs on the upper levels above where the plane struck because they didn't collapse and eject debris the way the lower floors did. But it would be somewhat difficult to predict exactly where the planes would strike, especially if you didn't have expert piloting, so you wouldn't know on which floors to put the bombs. Setting that issue aside, there's the fact that we mentioned that as the towers fell, the force being exerted on the lower levels increased with the collapse of each new upper floor, progressively overcoming resistance the lower floors could put up. The towers were 110 stories tall, so if you think about it, when floor 50 collapsed, it had the weight of 60 higher floors crushing down on it. And when floor 30 collapsed, it had the weight of 80 upper floors crashing down on it. When floor 10 collapsed, it had the weight of 100 upper floors hitting it. And when the first floor collapsed, it had all 109 upper floors hitting it. So you can see how the increase in weight of the falling floors would progressively deprive the lower floors of more ability to slow the fall. Third, and most fundamentally, we don't know precisely how many seconds it took the towers to fall. 
As they collapsed, they kicked up an enormous amount of dust and debris, especially towards the bottom, and so there's no way to tell precisely when the top of the structure reached the ground. It was simply too obscured by dust to tell, and the seismic data doesn't tell us because it's not precise enough. This is reflected in the fact that different groups in the 9-11 Truth Movement provide different estimates of how long it took for the buildings to fall. Some claim it was only 9 seconds, which would indicate a freefall-like situation, but others say 10 seconds, some say 14, others 15, and some 16 seconds. So it's far from established that the towers fell faster than they should have. What about the claim that as they fell, puffs of dust and debris were ejected through the windows, suggesting a series of explosions? While a series of explosions would progressively blow out the windows as the towers fell, they're not the only thing that would have done this. The progressive collapse of the floors also would have done it. This is a known phenomenon in architectural engineering, and it's called pancaking. Remember that, especially in more recent buildings, the floors are mostly made up of empty space with a lot of air in them. When it happens that a floor collapses, it generates a lot of dust and particulate matter that fills the air on a floor. But that air is also put under pressure by the collapse, and the compressed air seeks a way out to an area with normal air pressure. So it blows out the big plate glass windows on the floor, ejecting puffs of dust and debris with it. And as the building pancakes down, you get these puffs of dust ejecting from progressively lower floors if the building is collapsing from above which is what we see in the videos of the towers collapsing, and it's exactly what you'd expect to see. We'll have some video you can watch of controlled demolitions so you can see how the puffs of air happen. That brings us to another subject, which is how controlled demolitions actually happen. What do demolition experts do? They don't do what we see in the World Trade Center. Precisely because you want as much weight crushing down on the lower floors as possible, They set the charges at the base of the building, and so the bottom of the building collapses first. They occasionally set another group of charges higher up in the middle of the structure so that the building collapses from the bottom in the middle at the same time. But what we see in the World Trade Center is that they collapse from the top, from precisely where the planes hit them, not above or below. And the puffs of air travel down the building as they collapse. If you watch the videos of controlled demolitions that we'll have, you'll see something different. Either you won't notice puffs of air at all because the building is collapsing from the bottom without the air pressure of upper floors being high enough to blow out the windows, or you'll see puffs of air shoot up the building as the shock wave from below travels upward. You won't see downward traveling puffs of air because controlled demolitions aren't done from the top down. Finally, what should we make of the claim that seismologists detected two strong jolts at the beginning of each collapse, suggesting two detonations? The seismologists who published the results deny this. What the graphs actually show are not sharp spikes that then trail off, suggesting new explosions. Instead, they show spikes that build in intensity, peak, and then trail off. So the graphs are not front-loaded in the way that's claimed, and even if they were, that wouldn't indicate an explosion. When a controlled demolition takes place, the explosion is fairly seismically small, and then the weight of the building coming down 
creates a bigger seismic footprint. I mean, think about that. If you had a bunch of metal plates stacked up like a house of cards, which would cause more vibration? The vibration caused by you knocking out one of those plates to start a chain reaction of them coming down, or the vibration caused by the chain reaction itself with all the plates hitting the ground in rapid succession. In any event, the seismologist who published the paper that's being cited have said that their work has been misrepresented and does not indicate a controlled demolition. Based on all these considerations, what's your conclusion? I don't think we have good evidence for a controlled demolition in this case, and I conclude that the standard account is correct. The airplanes did significant structural damage to the floors they struck. The jet fuel started a hot fire that burned for about 10 minutes and transferred heat into the steel, helping hold the building up. The short fire set off a much longer one in which the flammable material inside the towers burned for between one and two hours, transferring more heat into the steel. And eventually, the floors that were struck by the planes could no longer bear the weight of the floors above them, causing the buildings to start to collapse from where the planes struck and then pancake downward. What about World Trade Center 7, the building that wasn't struck by an airplane? Why did it collapse if it wasn't a controlled demolition? The fact that this building went down when it wasn't even struck by a plane hit a lot of people as really odd. I think almost anybody would have questions about why that happened. And so many have pointed to the collapse of World Trade Center 7 as the smoking gun that would show that more than just airplanes were involved in the 9-11 attacks. We should note that this building was shorter than the Twin Towers, but it was still really tall. It was 47 stories high, making it a little less than half as tall as the Twin Towers. And it was still taller than many of the surrounding buildings. It had many rather important tenants and housed the New York offices of the CIA, the Defense Department, the IRS, the Office of Emergency Management, the Secret Service, and the Securities and Exchange Commission. While it wasn't struck by a plane, World Trade Center 7 was struck twice, as we noted. It initially suffered damage when Flight 11 slammed into World Trade Center 1, sending flaming debris down onto it. And then it suffered more damage when World Trade Center 1 collapsed and it was hit with even more debris. And it was even hard at the time to determine how much World Trade Center 7 had been damaged. There was a lot of smoke from the fires in the building that the burning debris had caused, and external photographs hid much of the building from view. However, photographs taken from inside World Trade Center 7 by the New York Police Department during the disaster showed that there was a lot of internal damage. Also, there were some photos of the exterior, you know, where the smoke would clear a bit, that did reveal that much more extensive damage had been done to the building than many people realized. Falling debris had made an enormous scoop-shaped gash on one side of the building that went a quarter of the way through the structure. And a gash that goes 25% of the way through a building means that very significant structural damage has been done. Was that enough to cause it to collapse? Not by itself, but fires started inside the building because of the flaming debris that fell on it. Wouldn't these fires have burned out quickly since there wasn't a supply of jet fuel like in the Twin Towers? Actually, no, and for two reasons. First, while a jet didn't hit the building, the fire did have a fuel supply. 
Not only were there a large number of flammable things in the building, including all of the paper records stored by the multiple government agencies housed there, but perhaps because of all the important offices it contained, the building had emergency backup generators in case of power failure and a huge quantity of fuel to keep the power generators running in case of a long-lasting power failure. The building contained 42 thousand gallons of diesel fuel for the backup generators. And second, the sprinkler system failed when the Twin Towers went down and damaged the water mains. So World Trade Center 7 didn't have a continuous water supply to dampen the fires. And of course, there's only so much sprinkler systems can do anyway. What happened then was that small fires were touched off and they spread slowly through the building without being impeded by the sprinkler system. They burned slowly for eight and a half hours, transferring heat energy into the steel that was part of the structure. Did that cause it to lose strength and buckle like in the Twin Towers? It did cause it to lose strength, but heat also has another effect, which is to make metal expand. The National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, did a multi-year study of what was happening inside World Trade Center 7, and they were able to reconstruct the precise sequence of how the structural supports in the building started to fail. Popular Mechanics did a summary of the NIST findings and said... Based on the temperatures inside WTC-7, key floor beams increased in length by more than four and a quarter inches in the northeast section of the building. At floor 13, that expansion sheared the bolts that connected column 79 in the northeast corner of the building's interior to the girder reaching across to column 44 on the tower's north face. At approximately 5.20 p.m., continued expansion pushed the girder entirely off the seat, holding it against column 79 sending floor 13 collapsing onto the floors below. A cascade of floor failures followed, according to NIST, leaving column 79, which supported approximately 2,000 square feet of floor space, with insufficient lateral support between floors 5 and 14. The weight of the 33 floors above buckled column 79 eastward, beginning a progressive collapse of the upper floors on the northeast corner. The sudden load redistribution coupled with debris damage from the falling floors buckled nearby columns 80 and 81, according to NIST, initiating an east-to-west chain reaction of interior column failures. With the core in ruins, load redistribution from the gutted building buckled the exterior columns between floors 7 and 14 and brought down the exterior of the tower. Thus, NIST was able to determine how this could happen even without an airplane hitting the building. First, falling debris did large-scale damage to the structure, including gashing one of the building's sides with a hole that went 25% of the way through the structure. Flaming debris also started fires that spread unchecked after the sprinkler system failed. They were fed by fuel sources, including large amounts of flammable material, including paper records, and 42,000 gallons of diesel fuel for the backup generators. The fires burned for eight and a half hours, giving them time to transfer enough heat energy 
into the steel structure to cause the support beams to expand, come out of their housings, and damage the support columns. And as one bit of the interior support structure collapsed, the shift in weight caused the next support element to fail, resulting in a chain reaction, causing the building to basically hollow itself out. And once that happened, the exterior of the building collapsed as well, since it had nothing to support it. Some have said that the real estate developer Larry Silverstein accidentally admitted that the building was deliberately brought down, saying that they needed to pull it. What do you make of that? It's true that Silverstein did use the phrase pull it in a later TV interview, but he wasn't using this phrase to mean what people have claimed. First, if it was possible to pull it in the sense of deliberately bringing down the building on the day of the attacks... That would indicate that there were explosives already planted in the building, and Silverstein would have to be really colossally stupid to admit that in a TV interview for all the TV audience to hear. He would be admitting that there were explosives in the building and that he suggested setting them off, exposing him not only to all kinds of lawsuits and criminal charges for endangering people's lives, But he would also be exposing the plot, and I can easily imagine his co-conspirators wanting to kill him to keep him silent and to keep him from testifying in court after a slip like that. It would be a mind-bogglingly stupid thing to admit, and that suggests that we should examine the context to see what he actually meant by this phrase. When you do that, you find out that on the day of the attacks, he was talking to the commander of the New York Fire Department, who told him that they thought they might be unable to contain the fires. Silverstein then replied, in view of the loss of life that had occurred, maybe it would be better to pull it, meaning pull the effort to fight the fires so as not to endanger the firefighters and potentially lead to more lives being lost. He then says that they, meaning the fire department, made the decision to pull or stop the effort to fight the fires. And then, with the fires raging out of control, they transferred enough heat to the building support structures to cause the internal collapse, and everyone watched the building come down. Here's the quotation from the original TV interview, so you can hear it for yourself. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. I said, you know, we've had such terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is is pull it. Uh, And they made that decision to pull, and then we watched the building collapse. And pull is the language you'd expect him to use on this occasion. Popular mechanics checked with demolition experts and asked if pull or pull it were used in their industry for bringing down a building. And they said, no, they'd never heard that phrase. But when they talked with firefighters, they were told, yes, pull is a common firefighting term for pulling personnel out of a dangerous structure. And Silverstein later issued a statement saying this is exactly what he was saying. The statement read, Mr. Silverstein expressed his view that the most important thing was to protect the safety of those firefighters, including, if necessary, to have them withdraw from the building. So Silverstein recommended that the fire department pull it, meaning end their futile effort to control the fires in the building and get the firefighters out, and then they, the fire department, made the decision to pull, meaning remove their personnel from the dangerous building. 
Wouldn't it be strange, especially if the U.S. government was responsible for the attacks, for them to collapse a building that held so many offices for major government agencies? It would. That would be very strange indeed. But others have proposed that the building may have contained something incriminating, like records or equipment that needed to be destroyed. This doesn't seem to be a satisfactory explanation to me, though, because if the building had such records or equipment in it, it would be much easier to simply take those things out rather than bring the whole building down. Uh, bringing a building down would involve smuggling lots of explosives into the building and then wiring them all up. That would be harder to do and easier to detect than just removing certain incriminating items. But even if I wanted to bring down the whole building, this is not remotely how I would do it. What would you do instead? If I'm trying to sell the public on the idea that the World Trade Center buildings were being brought down due to airplanes hitting them, then in addition to Towers 1 and 2, I would do the obvious thing and have an airplane slam into World Trade Center 7 as well. And that would be entirely possible. Building 7 was one of the tallest buildings in New York, taller than many of the buildings around it, and there were multiple approaches an airplane could have taken to hit it. I looked up the heights of nearby buildings, and I could see multiple approaches a plane could have taken on the map. It seems to me that not hitting World Trade Center 7 with a plane would be a colossal and obvious mistake. Because having a building fall with no plane hitting it is bound to raise questions in people's mind as went on to happen. And it led to a multi-year investigation for the National Institutes of Standard and Technology to figure out what happened. It's much easier to explain the collapse of the structure if you simply fly a plane into it. That would be the obvious step to take. So I don't think the controlled demolition scenario makes sense here. This looks like a tragic accident caused by the building being hit by massive amounts of falling flaming debris from the nearby tower. Are there parallel cases you can cite where buildings were severely damaged when a nearby building collapsed? Actually, yes. And right at the same site in New York City. When a tall building goes down, it can do a lot of damage to other nearby buildings, especially if they're smaller. When the 110-story World Trade Center 1 went down, it did a lot of damage to World Trade Center 7. And when the 47-story World Trade Center 7 went down, it did a lot of damage to a building across the street called Fitterman Hall. Fitterman Hall was owned by Manhattan Community College, and it was only 15 stories tall. When debris from World Trade Center 7 hit it, Fitterman Hall was so structurally damaged that it was unsafe, could not be repaired, and ultimately had to be demolished. Yet another nearby building, the 32-story Verizon building, also suffered a lot of damage when World Trade Center 7 went down, and it took four years to repair. So yeah, a big building coming down can do large amounts of damage to nearby buildings, especially when it's not a carefully controlled demolition being guided by experts. The next target we need to consider was the Pentagon and the damage done to it. What do we have to say here? The standard account is that the damage was caused when Flight 77 crashed into it. The primary alternative view is that it wasn't a plane, but a missile that was used to damage the Pentagon. One of the arguments for that is that intact aircraft engines were not found at the site. 
To investigate this, I spoke with Dr. Gwen Lindy, a Mysterious World listener and a retired Air Force colonel who was there on 9-11 and was an eyewitness of the destruction. We'll have a link to my YouTube channel where you can watch the full bonus video interview that I did with her. It's a companion resource for this episode, but here are a few excerpts. With us today is Dr. Gwen Lindy, and she is an eyewitness to the events of 9-11. She's here to tell us about what she saw. Dr. Lindy, could you start by telling us about your background? Well, I was, um, I'm retired from the United States Air Force. I served uh, 26 and a half years in the Air Force, retiring as a colonel. Um, and so I mentioned that because that was uh, uh, my duty when I was a witness to the events we're talking about. Um, I was a pilot during much of that time. I also served as a staff officer um, and a squadron commander. I finished out my career um, as an attache uh, working at the United States Embassy in Santiago, Chile. After I retired, um, I went back to graduate school. I got a master's and a doctorate in geology. And um, I, uh, 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 what may be of interest, I'm a lay Dominican here in, uh, I live in the Salt Lake City area. And um, I'm also uh, the RCIA director and teach RCIA at my uh, parish, the Newman Center at the University of Utah. Where were you on 9-11 itself? September 11th, 2001, I was attending classes at a place called the Foreign Service Institute. How close is that to the Pentagon? It's about four miles away from the Pentagon. What's the first indication you have that something unusual is happening? Uh, I was going to Santiago, Chile. So I was in a, in a Latin American uh, culture class. So learning about Latin American history and culture. And we heard a, an explosion and felt the ground shake. It was a definite hard shake to the ground and a loud explosion. No one really knew what it was. Uh, we'd been in class for probably an hour, hour and a half, something like that. So we were, you know, looking back, I can see we were totally unaware of uh, the attacks that had happened at the World Trade Center in New York. So we had kind of no context. We were told that we had to evacuate the Foreign Service Institute facility and leave. You eventually make your way to the Pentagon where you saw the damage with your own eyes. How did you get over there? Fairly close to where we were was the Arlington, a branch of the Arlington, Virginia Red Cross. And we thought, well, let's go see if they need some help. I mean, we were just kind of desperate. Let's do something rather than just, you know, kind of sitting on our butts waiting to for information to develop. I mean, we were, you know, military officers. So the Red Cross said, hey, we could use your help because it looks like we're going to get called to the Pentagon. So we went with the Red Cross vehicles and we went to the Pentagon. As part of her military training, Dr. Lindy had been trained as an aircraft accident investigator. So she knew what to look for at the site of an aircraft crash. When she got to the Pentagon and saw the debris, she immediately recognized it as coming from an airplane rather than a missile. When I walked up, the first thing I noticed when uh, when I came up that uh, west side of the Pentagon was that the ground was littered with thousands upon thousands of pieces of airplane. And how did you know there were pieces of airplane rather than yeah, a missile? Because there were so many of them and because of the paint scheme. An airplane is... Given a, it's, I think it's zinc chromate, is a kind of a pale lime green color, is a um, anti-corrosion covering that's put on most surfaces of airplanes, inside and out. Now, the outside of an airplane ends up getting painted in U.S. Air Force colors or Pan Am colors or whatever airline colors kind of thing when, it, when an airplane's painted. But the inside doesn't get repainted. So like the inside of the wing and the inside of the fuselage and whatnot is still that green color. And there were just 
uncountable numbers of small to medium to large pieces of shattered green pieces of metal all over that west lawn, pieces of airplane all over the place. So based on her experience as an aircraft accident investigator, both the quantity of the debris and the green tinted anti-corrosive undercoat of paint that's used on airplanes, it was easy for her to identify this as airplane debris. She also reports parts that would not have been on a missile, such as the compressor blades of an aircraft engine, as well as parts that would have been too large for a missile. I saw a couple of pieces of what I thought were compressor blades, which would be the engine from parts. an engine, from an airplane, from an airplane engine. Yeah. And some bigger pieces as well. Pieces that would be too big for, you know, eight or 10 foot long missile or something like that. You know, the other thing that strikes me when you think about it is that all the pieces of metal that I saw, and it was striking to me, I had been maybe three or four years prior, five years prior, something like that. I had been the chief of safety at an air mobility wing as a lieutenant colonel. And um, I had gone to the Air Force's accident investigation course, learning how to investigate airplane accidents. And that's what you look for. That's one of the things you look for is the pattern of destruction, the pattern in which, uh, you know, when an airplane slams into the ground unintentionally and disintegrates into little pieces, you look for the patterns of uh, how that wreckage is distributed. And so you learn what to look for, what kind of wreckage to look for. And that's what I saw. So even though intact airplane engines were not found because they'd been destroyed in the crash, Dr. Lindy reports seeing the wrecked parts of airplane engines and other airplane parts. She also had thoughts on whether the attacks could have been an inside job in which the aircraft wreckage was faked. Well, I mean, I would say that anything is possible, but I think that people that say that are granting a level of competency to the government. <laughs> I'm going to say they've never worked for the government <laughs> if they think the government is quite that competent. Because you, when you think about it at the Pentagon, I can't speak about uh, New York and what happened there because I have, you know, I have the same knowledge most everybody else does. But at the Pentagon, they would have had to organize and have people out there that day placing those pieces of metal down. Right. If, if it mm -hmm. wasn't an airplane and the engine parts that were found. And the, yeah. And the engine parts and things like that. I don't know. You, you, you know, the old rule that when you have a secret. If you tell one other person, it's no longer going to be a secret, right? Because people can't keep secrets. And it expands the, the likelihood of your secret becoming a not a secret expands exponentially with every person you add to the group. And I just I have a really hard time knowing how difficult it is our government has keeping secrets <laughs> and planning intricate operations like this, I just don't see it. I don't see them being able to plan it, execute it, or keep it secret. That's the biggest thing. Every single person that was in on it, supposedly, every person that was in on it had to keep the secret. Every single one of how many hundreds of people, just kind of simple common sense and knowledge of how the government works and knowledge of how people work <laughs> tells me that uh, I, I, just, I, just don't, I just don't see that having happened. And indeed, the no planes view seems to have substantially fallen out of favor, even in the 9-11 truth movement. And many in the movement today are quite prepared to acknowledge that it was Flight 77 rather than a missile that did damage to the Pentagon. By the way, I strongly recommend that listeners go to my YouTube channel and watch the full interview with Dr. Lindy. She's very intelligent and a very insightful individual, and we covered a lot more ground than what I was able to include in these clips. So definitely check out the interview and be sure and subscribe while you're there. That brings us to what happened with the last of the hijacked planes, Flight 93. 
it didn't do damage to structures on the ground because it crashed in an empty field, but there's still some mystery here. What do we need to say? The basic thing we need to consider is whether Flight 93 was brought down as the result of a passenger revolt or whether it was deliberately brought down by another aircraft. The proposal is that it was either shot down by a military plane or by a white plane that eyewitnesses reported seeing in the sky. Of all the alternatives we've considered, I find this the most believable. I have no trouble believing that with Flight 93 approaching Washington, D.C., that a shoot-down order would have been given. In fact, we'll see evidence that one was given. And after the fact, I think it's entirely possible that the authorities could have decided to hide this fact to avoid admitting to the grieving families that their loved ones had been deliberately killed. So I don't have any problem with this one in principle. For me, it's entirely a question of which way the evidence points. And what evidence have advocates of this theory claimed? It's been claimed that an F-16 pilot named Major Rick Gibney shot down Flight 93, and Major Gibney was on the East Coast on 9-11, but not at the right time. Also, he was a lieutenant colonel, not a major. That morning, Lieutenant Colonel Gibney was in Fargo, North Dakota. He was then assigned to fly the director of New York State's Emergency Management Office, Edward Jacoby, back to Albany, New York, to coordinate rescue efforts. Jacoby was in Bozeman, Montana, so Gibney had to fly from Fargo to Bozeman to pick him up. Gibney then took off from Fargo at 10.45 a.m. Eastern Time, which was 42 minutes after Flight 93 had already crashed, and he and Director Jacoby didn't arrive in New York until 6.30 p.m., so there's no way he could have done it. He wasn't in the area until long after the plane came down. What about the white plane that eyewitnesses reported seeing in the area where Flight 93 crashed? The eyewitnesses are correct. There was a white plane in the area. And we know exactly what it was. It was an ordinary civilian plane. Specifically, it was a Dassault Falcon 20 business jet owned by the VF Corporation, which is a clothing company that markets Wrangler jeans, among other things. It's a very small plane that was capable of holding 10 to 16 people, depending on how it was configured. And the reason it was involved is because it was approaching nearby Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and had already began its descent for a landing at the airport. The FAA was trying to find Flight 93, which had dropped off their radar, so they contacted the jet and asked it to investigate. The civilian pilot thus diverted and from the landing and saw the smoke coming from where Flight 93 crashed. They got low, circled the area, and saw a hole in the ground. They then flew directly over the site so that they could get its exact latitude and longitude from the navigation system and relay it back to the FAA. So, yes, people did see a white jet flying over and around the site. But it was a known, unarmed civilian plane owned by a clothing company that had been asked to search for Flight 93. You said that a shoot-down order was given on 9-11. What about that? This did happen, and we'll talk more about it next episode as well, but it didn't happen until very late in the game. At the time, it required a presidential order to shoot down a civilian plane here in the U.S. So in Washington, the Secret Service asked Vice President Cheney to consult with President Bush about it. Cheney was in the White House emergency shelter, but was in communication with President Bush, who had been in Florida, but was shuttled away on Air Force One. 
Cheney explained the situation to Bush, and the president authorized a shootdown order, which Cheney then gave to a military aide between 10.12 and 10.18 a.m. The trouble was, Flight 93 had already crashed at 10.02 a.m. before the order was given. And after this display of incompetence in dealing with these planes, the rule was changed so that now such orders don't require presidential approval. They can now be given by several NORAD generals so that they don't have to brief and consult with the president in a chaotic, rapidly changing situation. How would you assess the overall evidence regarding Flight 93? I don't think that it supports the shootdown proposal, as intrinsically plausible as that one is. Uh, I mean, they would have shot it down if they had given the order earlier and had the ability to get a fighter in its vicinity. But we just don't have evidence of another plane shooting it down. And the evidence we have regarding the shootdown order is that one was given, but not until after the plane had crashed. And we do have good evidence of a passenger revolt happening on the plane. This included multiple people who were on the plane telling people on the ground about it, including flight attendant Cece Lyles, who was praying with her husband on the phone even after the revolt began, which she then left to join. We have the black box data showing how pilot Ziad Jara was tilting the plane left and right and then up and down to try to knock the passengers off balance. And we have the cockpit voice recorder revealing the sounds of the passengers storming the cockpit and the terrorists discussing whether and when to crash the plane. While this recording hasn't been publicly circulated, it has been heard by members of the victims' families, and they say they can hear and identify their loved ones' voices and things they say as they participate in the assault. Couldn't all of this be faked? Anything can be faked. In any situation, for any mystery you consider, you can always propose additional evidence to explain away the evidence you do have. The question is, what does the evidence that you do have say? And do you actually have evidence that counters it? In this case, I don't see strong evidence that a shootdown actually occurred, and I do see strong evidence that a passenger revolt actually occurred. Jimmy, what's your preliminary bottom line? I think that the 9-11 attacks involved four hijacked planes. I think that it was these four planes that did the damage on the ground. The buildings of the World Trade Center, including Building 7, were not brought down by controlled demolitions, but by damage caused by the planes hitting the Twin Towers. The Pentagon also was hit by a plane, and it was a passenger revolt that brought down Flight 93. But we still haven't looked at who is responsible for all this. And as we'll see next episode, the U.S. government did cover up information directly related to this situation. And Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? First, we'll have a link to the bonus interview I did with Dr. Gwen Lindy. And like I said, it, it's a really interesting interview. We covered a lot more than just the few clips you heard. So be sure to check that out on my YouTube channel and subscribe while you're there. Uh, we'll also have links to the 9-11 Commission Report, to the popular mechanics book, Debunking 9-11 Myths, and this book also cites many 9-11 Truth websites. So if you get the Kindle version of it, it's very easy to click through to the 9-11 Truth Movement websites to see their side of the story. We'll also have Douglas Chiringano's book, American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodward's book, 9-11 Unmasked, 
which is a truth movement book, as is David Chiranganos. We'll have a link to the Catholic Answers booklet, Pillar of Fire, Pillar of Truth. We'll have a link to the website 911truth.org, a documentary Voices from the Air, a video that we heard some clips from with airplane and air traffic control recordings. Also, videos of controlled demolitions, videos of the Twin Towers coming down in New York, a TSA video, a CBS video, articles on the 9-11 attacks and 9-11 conspiracy theories, information on Captain Victor Saracini from the plane that struck the second tower, information on Barbara Olson, an appearance of Barbara Olson on Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect program, and also her husband, Ted Olson, reflecting on Barbara's death. Thank you. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? We have, well, since we're talking about a terrorist attack, I decided to have a couple of articles linked about killers. If you've ever watched the British show Sherlock. You will you may remember that Sherlock periodically is disparagingly said by someone to be a psychopath, and he instantly always corrects them by telling them to do their research. He's a high functioning sociopath. Well, <laughs> a lot of people wonder what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath, and is there one? It's true that some people use these terms sloppily, but they actually, at least in by various psychological authorities, can be distinguished. So we'll have a link to an article discussing the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths. And even though in 2001, terrorists were using airplanes as weapons, there is ongoing weapons research, including into autonomous killing solutions, meaning killer robots. And the Vatican has recently issued a warning about killer robots. So check out the Vatican's killer robot warning. Very good. Thank you. I, I will. <laughs> yeah. Before we go, we also want to say a special thanks to Dr. Gwen Lindy for sharing her experiences with us from 9-11 and what she saw at the Pentagon. Like we said, be sure to check out the full bonus video with her on my YouTube channel, which is Jimmy, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And be sure to subscribe and hit the bell notifications while you're there. I'm trying to grow my channel, and I really appreciate it. Also, thank you to Melanie Bettinelli for providing the female voice reading for some of the quotes we read. Very good. So we want to ask you, as we uh, enter into this week in between these two episodes about the 9-11 attacks, what are your theories about the 9-11 attacks and what caused all the damage they did? You can let us know by going online and visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what will we what will we be talking about next time? Next time, we'll be looking into who was responsible for the 9-11 attacks, why they were committed and what the U.S. government really did hide afterwards. All right. Look forward to that. Folks, be sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. Send StarQuest to 66866. And you'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>